Hello and welcome back to episode two in our mini-series on C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. I'm so glad so many of you are interested in reading along with us. This episode covers chapters one through six, so if you haven't had a chance to read those, I would pause and go read them and then come back and join us. Just a reminder, you can always send in your observations, and some of them might make their way onto the show, in two ways. First, you can just email me a text-based observation. My email address is in the details for this episode. But you can also call and record your observations leaving a voicemail at 469-620-0987. Like I said, we might be able to work some of those into our next episode. Speaking of the next episode, this one covers chapters 1 through 6. The next episode will cover chapters 7 through 12. So now is the time to send in those observations for chapters 7 through 12. In each of these episodes, we'll offer a chapter-by-chapter summary and then share just a few things that are fascinating about each chapter. Sometimes these are observations C.S. Lewis is making about life or theology or anything in between. Other times, it's just a fascinating thing to remember or keep in mind for perhaps later on in the book, or it could be clarifying remarks about specific cultural references that we might find in each chapter. My own children are here to help us know when we're hearing a chapter summary and when we're hearing chapter observations. You will know that it's a chapter summary when you hear my son say, It's story time. And you'll know it's time for a few observations when you hear my daughter say, A few observations. My apologies in advance. They may have also picked out a few musical and sound effect accompaniments. So let's jump right in and start with chapter one of Out of the Silent Planet. It's story time. In chapter one, we meet Ransom, a professor who is on a walking tour of the English countryside when he stumbles upon a fellow professor, this time a physicist, and an old schoolmate who appears to be harassing a young man who works for the two of them. A few observations. A couple of notes on this. I think it's pretty clear from the beginning that Ransom is a stand-in of sorts for C.S. Lewis himself. Ransom in our book is a, a professor of philology, not exactly what Lewis covered, but certainly within the humanities. Lewis tends to do this on occasion. Another really good example of this is in his book, The Great Divorce, where the main character really is seen as a stand-in for Lewis's own life and his own conversion and process of sanctification. So as you're reading Out of the Silent Planet and you're engaging with Ransom the character, it's not too much of a stretch to picture yourself engaging with C.S. Lewis himself. There are so many moments throughout this book where everyday things, fairly small things that happen to you and I, also happen to Ransom. There's a quick example of that here in chapter one. Ransom notices that there's two men mistreating a third person, and he's you know, wanting to intervene, and it even says that in his mind he thinks he's going to say something bold and brave like, what are you doing to that boy? And what actually comes out is just a, a whimper, 
really kind of a stutter where he says something along the lines of, and here, I, I say, I think we can all certainly relate to having several moments a day where we imagine we'll say something noble and bold, and what comes out is certainly less than that. Something else that happens in chapter one is we begin to see a bit of a juxtaposition, almost a battle between the humanities and the sciences. Uh, we meet this battle early on in the character of Weston versus the character of Ransom. Ransom, again, as you recall, is a professor in the humanities. Weston is a science professor, a physicist, in fact. Early on in the book, you see glimpses of this showdown between the humanities and the sciences. Weston is talking to his partner about all of the um, money that's wasted at the university level on non-scientific study, and he really sets up science itself as the only way to true knowledge. This is a, a recurring theme, scientism, the belief that science alone can solve all of our problems and that science alone is the only path towards truth, is something that C.S. Lewis often battled against in both his work as a professor and as an author. So that's not all that was included in chapter one, but I think it gets the ball rolling as we continue to explore this book together. It's story time. In chapter two, Ransom prepares to stay the night at this newfound house and is invited in for drinks with his former classmate. As he begins to learn more about Weston the scientist and Divine, his friend who appears to be funding the scientist, Ransom is drugged. It soon becomes clear that whatever plans the two men had for the young man will now be fulfilled by an unwilling but heavily drugged Ransom. A few observations. Our observations from chapter two could be divided into three areas. First, the sort of things that we encounter in our own lives and the lives of others that we just see Lewis pointing out in this chapter. Second, perhaps insights into Lewis's own thoughts. And third, further developments on Lewis's uh, battle of sorts with scientism. So the first sort of observation is just merely pointing out two things that I noticed in the chapter that I seem to notice uh, in my own life and the lives of people we know. At one point, Lewis describes this former classmate of his as someone whom we have admired in boyhood for a very brief period and then outgrown. I think Lewis does a very good job subtly drawing our attention to the fact that what, say, a 12-year-old or 16-year-old or 18-year-old boy might find hilarious or interesting or fascinating in their friend, uh, they will actually quickly outgrow of finding that sort of thing interesting or hilarious or fascinating. I think Lewis probably experienced that himself and worked it into this character. Ransom also later talks about divine as being in the class of, quote, irritating people who forget to use their hands when they begin talking, end quote. He's in a conversation with Divine, who's supposed to be pouring him a drink, but every time Divine starts talking, he stops doing what he was supposed to do. Uh, that's something we certainly see from time to time in our own lives. The next observation is one where we might actually see a glimpse of Lewis pondering his own situation through the character of Ransom. 
Ransom, we know, is on a walkabout, just a long walking tour of the English countryside. And he describes a professor, like himself, on vacation as almost a non-existent creature. I wonder if this is a place where Lewis is projecting a bit onto Ransom and making a note about the loneliness that he felt in being a professor, in being a single professor for a good chunk of his life. And just thinking, if I went on vacation for a few months and was eventually captured and brought to a strange new world, who would notice back home? Our final set of observations are just further developments into this battle with scientism that Lewis will have throughout the series. First, we see it in his description of the project that Weston is working on. Divine himself is trying to talk up the project. He says, It's all straight stuff, the march of progress and the good of humanity and all that, but it has an industrial side. In other words, Divine is saying, look, Weston is in, into this project, whatever it is, to march humanity forward, to serve our good, but Divine is actually in the project for its industrial side. In other words, how he might be able to make money off of this project. I think Lewis is playing his cards here a little bit, linking this talk of progress to capitalism, to the, the desire to make money um, what Weston might want to describe as this noble cause to further the human race, the character of divine is in there for Lewis to remind us all that often those that talk about things like making the world a better place or helping everyone are actually in it for a different reason. And I think Lewis saw that in scientism as it expressed itself in his day. The second place in this chapter where Lewis tells us what he thinks about scientism, is when Weston describes what should be done with the young man who he terms an idiot, whose place Ransom has now taken. Weston says the following about this young man that he calls an idiot. He was the sort of boy who in a civilized community would be automatically handed over to the state laboratory for experimental purposes. Throughout much of the rest of the following paragraphs, we see that Weston views this person as less than human. This would be another area of scientism that Lewis was quick to raise a flag about. Lewis was quick to point out the link between scientific progress through scientism and the diminishing of human value. Humans that were capable of contributing to society and advancing the human cause were valued and respected within scientism. Those who were not able to contribute to society, the very young, the very old, the disabled, the handicapped, they were thought of as byproducts, as perhaps raw material that could be used for some other purpose, but they were certainly given a less than human status and we begin to see, through the character of Weston, that critique of scientism itself. So there it is, Chapter 2 of Out of the Silent Planet. It's story time! In Chapter 3, Ransom awakens to find himself in what he first thinks to be a large room, and then eventually some sort of moving vehicle. The chapter unfolds as a fascinating, gradual discovery of the situation in which he finds himself. 
At the end of the chapter, the reader discovers along with Ransom that he is in fact in outer space. A few observations. I think an interesting note from this chapter that Lewis draws out through the character of Ransom is that we do our very best as humans to make sense of our surroundings given what we have previously experienced. Throughout this chapter, Ransom tries to explain different phenomena based on his past experience. We also see a highlighting of a gradual discovery of reality. In Lewis could have spent one sentence saying, Ransom woke up and found himself in a spaceship. But instead, he shows us that there was a drawn-out, slow process in which Ransom discovered ultimate reality. This is perhaps not unlike C.S. Lewis's own conversion to Christianity. And a final observation, especially for those perhaps that are listening to this in the spring of 2020 as we're making it, We see a deep longing for human connection in Ransom, in this state of isolation that he finds himself. This comes through very clearly whenever he is actually pleased to see the door open and one of the men responsible for placing him in this prison emerges. He's so hungry and thirsty for human connection that even seeing his captors brings him some sense of joy. It was short, but there it is. Chapter 3 of Out of the Silent Planet. It's story time. In Chapter 4 of Out of the Silent Planet, Ransom discovers more about his situation. He talks with Weston about the fact that he is on board a spaceship headed to a planet in our solar system whose inhabitants have named it Malacandra. In addition to learning more about the ship and space travel in general, it turns out that Ransom also learns that he has some sort of role to play on the planet that they're headed towards. A few observations. Ransom's fear begins to emerge in this chapter. Not just fear that he is somehow involved in whatever plot is taking place as they head towards this new planet, but the fear of being so far away from home and in outer space. At the beginning of the chapter, Ransom says, You mean we're in space? Lewis tells us he uttered the word space with difficulty, as a frightened child speaks of ghosts, or a frightened man of cancer. Lewis is drawing us in to notice the universality of fear. In this chapter, we also see both the smugness of scientism and the religious nature of scientism. We see some of this smugness whenever Ransom is discovering that he has a role to play, and Weston says to him, I had thought no one could fail to be inspired by the role you were being asked to play, that even a worm, if it could understand, would rise to the sacrifice. We see almost the religious nature of scientism in Weston's words earlier in the chapter. We have finally learned how to jump off the speck of matter on which our species began. Infinity, and therefore perhaps eternity, is being put into the hands of the human race. Weston is convinced that part of his project is not just for the furtherment of knowledge and science, 
but to somehow bring the eternal into human nature. It is at this point that Lewis can't help but argue with one of the own characters that he's written in this book. Through the words of Ransom, Lewis challenges this religious aspect of scientism. Ransom says, I suppose all that stuff about infinity and eternity means that you are justified in doing anything, absolutely anything, here and now, on the off chance that some creatures or other descended from man as we know him may crawl about a few centuries longer in some part of the universe. In a wonderful talk that C.S. Lewis gave about living in the atomic age, he makes the point that if science alone is our source of truth and if science is right and it's all that can be trusted, then we ought to listen to it. And science points to the fact that the universe as we know it will not exist forever. At one point, everything we know will come to an end. And at that point, nothing will have mattered. Lewis, through Ransom, is challenging Weston. Weston thinks that through science and exploration and scientism, they can bring eternity to humanity. And Ransom is challenging Weston to say, your entire project might buy some descendant of humanity a few more centuries before the entire universe comes to an end. When our solar system and others like it cease to produce life, all will have been meaningless. If the material world is all that exists, and the material world will come to an end, Ransom is arguing there's no point in making sacrifices like the one they're about to make. There it is, chapter four. It's story time. In chapter five, Ransom continues to discover more about the ship, outer space, and though accidentally, his own role in the plan. Malacandra is populated with beings of some sort. They're called Sorns, and Ransom is to be sacrificed to them when he arrives. Ransom commits to doing all that he can to escape that fate, even if it means taking his own life. A few observations. Interesting note linked to other Lewis works, Ransom tells us that he feels extremely well while being aboard the ship. While Ransom is in space, he talks often about the power the sun has, um, how well he feels, he feels strong. It reminds us of Narnia. If you remember back, visitors from our world into Narnia often gain an extra dose of strength and courage upon visiting that enchanted land. So we, we see a, a, a throwback, in a sense, to Narnia during Ransom's time in space. Speaking of space, Lewis is also drawing our attention to the almost sacred nature of outer space. Ransom, for example, found it night after night more and more difficult to disbelieve in what he called old astrology. He says the very name space seemed to be a blasphemous libel for this embryon ocean of radiance in which they swam. 
Space is called in this chapter the womb of worlds. And finally, reaching a bit of a pinnacle in this section, Ransom comes to the conclusion that no, space is the wrong name for this place. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens, the heavens which declared the glory of God. Finally, Lewis gives us a brief note about the bitterness of betrayal itself in this chapter. Ransom comes to realize that being given to the Sorns by his fellow man was somehow worse than being caught directly by the Sorns. Betrayal is, in Ransom's own words, more horrible than being caught. There we have it, chapter five. It's story time. In chapter six, the final chapter for this podcast, Ransom wakes up feeling a little bit better about his situation than he did the night before. Soon it becomes clear that they are close to their destination, and Ransom begins to describe many of the side effects of transitioning from sailing through outer space to landing on a planet with its own gravitational pull. The chapter ends as Ransom's mind is racing on the nature of space itself, even as their ship approaches the surface, surface of Malacandra. A few observations. Ransom wakes up feeling much better than he did the night before. If you recall, at the end of chapter 5, he actually sneaks a knife away, planning to first try to escape once they land, and if all else fails, to take his own life. After a good night's sleep, some of his fear has dissipated, he's returned to a bit more of a level head, and he realizes this knife could be used on other people if need be, not just himself. There are continued reflections on light throughout this chapter. There's just something fascinating about light in space for Ransom. Even if you are further away from the light source or you shade the light source in some way, the light itself is not diminished the way it is on Earth. Ransom says you might have its intensity, cut it in half, and the remaining half would still be what the whole had been, merely less of it, not other. The clothes set out for Ransom in this chapter appear to be heavy, perhaps pointing us to a colder climate on the surface of the planet that they're going to. And finally, before we close, it's worth pointing out the very interesting final sentence of the chapter. The moment of his arrival in an unknown world found Ransom wholly absorbed in philosophical speculation, it tells us. What was this speculation? What thoughts filled Ransom's mind as they landed on Malacandra? In his previous life on Earth, like much of the rest of us, Ransom assumed that Earth was full and space was empty. Now that he had experienced space itself, or the heavens, as the ancients would call it, and is approaching a new planet, he realizes he was wrong all along. As he approaches this new planet, Ransom realizes that space, or the heavens, are the full reality, and that planets are just sprinkled throughout them, suspended. He even calls them, in a sense, subtractions from space, 
rather than additions to it. The heavens continue to fascinate Ransom even as his spaceship approaches the surface of this new planet. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode over chapters 1 through 6. We hope that you take some time in the next week or so to read chapters 7 through 12. Email in or leave a message with your comments, and we'd love to work them in to the show. <laughs>